Welcome to Fireside with VoxGig, a podcast for professional and aspiring public speakers. I'm your host, Orla Shanahi of VoxGig, an online community for speakers and event professionals. We're here to help you get the most out of speaking, organizing, exhibiting and attending. In each episode, I sit down for a relaxed fireside chat with people in the public speaking community. My aim is to learn how they've mastered the art of getting up on stage and speaking in front of an audience. If you're an aspiring speaker or just want to improve your onstage performance, this podcast will help you learn from some of the most accomplished and interesting professional conference speakers. And just before we begin, a quick shout out and thank you to our sponsor, simplecast.com, the first and last word in podcasts. With me today is Richard Roger. Richard is an international conference speaker, a serial entrepreneur, a published author and CEO of VoxGig Limited. He also writes a weekly column called Startup Diary for the Irish Independent Newspaper. Richard, thanks for joining me today. It's great to be here. You're a person who wears many hats. So let's start with what you're doing right now, running VoxGig. What is VoxGig and how did you come to start it? VoxGig is a software startup. It's is all about helping speakers, organizers, and exhibitors, technology conferences, get their work done. And I started it because I'm a speaker. And I ended up wasting huge amounts of time stuck in spreadsheets trying to figure out which conferences I should be speaking at, trying to let my colleagues know which conferences I had been accepted for, which ones I had been rejected for more frequently, and trying to have a web page where I put up the previous places that I'd spoke at, all that sort of thing. Speaking at conferences was a critical part of my previous business. It was part of the way that we met people to find sales leads and to find recruiting leads. And I just feel that professional speakers, or sorry, not professional speakers, professional speakers are paid. The people who speak professionally, it's not really their main job. Yeah. But they may be in senior roles, especially in tech companies, are expected to go out and speak at conferences. And I always felt like a bit, a bit like a performing monkey because you were sort of just thrown in the deep end and expected to do it without much support. So uh, I felt, well, we need to do something for speakers. We need to make their lives easier. I need to make my life easier. Okay. So even though VoxGig targets all participants really in the events space, it's uh, very focused on speakers. And um, I know you're very keen on building a speaker community. Can you tell us a bit about that? How does VoxGig create that community for speakers? I think a lot of people are afraid of public speaking. And one of the ways to get over a fear of something and to, to move to the next level is to have the support of a community. And that includes everything from learning materials like newsletters and that type of stuff to events like meetups. And in the tech world, we are great at meetups for all sorts of obscure languages. But in the events industry, paradoxically, not so much. Part of the reason that Oxley founded, for example, the event profs meetups in Dublin and London. But it is about kind of coming together as speakers and especially this podcast and learning from each other and also learning from people who are professional speakers who are paid to do it because they do it every week and they have great tricks and tips and ways to actually survive on stage. Okay. So you mentioned a few different types of events there. I know you speak yourself at a wide range of events from coder meetups to international technology conferences. So would it be fair to say you've ended up as a speaker almost by accident? Being an introvert, I would never have thought initially that I would do much public speaking. But in reality, I've always ended up on stage in one way or another. And this is a thing that I've noticed with a lot of speakers. Most speakers, 
especially tech, tend to be introverts, which might be a strange thing to say. But in a way, if you're up on stage speaking to lots of people, you have to do much less speaking to individual people. Uh-huh. So speaking to individual people is quite stressful for introverts, really. It's just not in our nature. We prefer to be scribbling away in, in the back rooms doing our creative work. But we can survive on stage because it, there's kind of a formula to it. I know that makes it sound like terrible psychopathic narcissists. <laughs> that's, that's the way it is. I was raised Catholic. And in Catholic Church, you have to do readings. And that's often given to teenagers. Mm-hmm. That's one of the tasks to participate in the church community. And that would, would have been my first experience of public speaking. And I also did a bit of debating in primary school. Okay. I mean, this is like the ultra nerd class. <laughs> I won all the prizes because I turned up. Well, even then, I think I had a, I had a little bit of a tendency to um, try to challenge the audience, perhaps. My very first talk that I won a prize for at the age of eight, possibly, was in defense of nuclear power. Okay. Just to take the opposing view. And you won a prize for that? That I won a prize for that, a science fiction book, which I still have. <laughs> so you made a good case for... But there wasn't any intent behind it, and it certainly wasn't like I became obsessed with it. It was just one of many random things that I would have done over time, and... It was only years later as, as an older teenager that I started to be involved a little bit with uh, things like drama and plays. But again, not, not to any huge extent. You know, they were just kind of fun social activities. Mm-hmm. I'm not total introvert. Occasionally. <laughs> Occasionally. And then for the first 10 years of my career, I didn't have any speaking at all. A very typical soccer developer's career path. Okay. Shadows in the back rooms. But, you know, you do get asked to do presentations in work, of course. Yeah. I think one boss or another must have seen some sort of ability and sort of dumped a couple of speaking gigs on me. This is often the way it happens, right? You have a boss who's been asked to speak somewhere, really doesn't want to do yet another blessed talk. <laughs> so they dump it on an underling. Okay. Uh, this is a really classic way in the tech world that people end up as speakers. Their boss chooses them because they seem halfway competent in terms of putting a few words and slides together from internal talks. And before they know it, they're being asked to do short presentations to customers and then in public and then Suddenly, they find themselves on a stage in front of 300 people sweating buckets and having a panic attack. <laughs> okay. That's a really ordinary path, I guess, to public speaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've given us quite a nice potted history there <laughs> of how you ended up speaking. But given that you're primarily a software person, an entrepreneur, once you'd been asked to do those initial few speaking gigs, how did you develop your skills? For example, have you done any training ever? I was very, very lucky to get a tiny little bit of PR training. Often, if you're in senior manager of a startup or a company, you end up being interviewed on the radio or um, the television, my goodness, or at least interviewed by journalists about the company. And you can do kind of media training where you're taught a little bit about answering questions the right way. Mm-hmm. The word segue comes up a lot, right? Because you have stuff you want to say, but you're asked awkward questions, so you have to segue into the right stuff. Okay. And that certainly helped a little bit. I think the other thing that helped is an obsession with storytelling, not in the sense of being a storyteller or something like that, although that's something you have to do as a speaker. But, you know, if you pay attention to films or books and the character arcs and the way that the author creates a narrative and whether that narrative is real, or if you read a history book and that narrative is, is sort of imposed on history, which is just one damn thing after another. From an audience perspective, having an arc, having a story, and I mean, a very classical structure of a story, or the beginning, middle and end, feels much more like a, a valuable learning experience. Okay. I think I just naturally brought that to the talks, yeah. because it's very easy with a technical talk to just just have a bunch of facts 
Yes. And a lot of technical books can get very tedious. Okay. So are you saying that you try to make it interesting for the audience by telling a story, by giving it that narrative structure? That's probably even too explicit. But answering the question, what is the point of this talk? What does the audience walk away with? It's useful. And asking and answering the question, why should somebody care about this material? It's not going to be a great talk. So, for example, a, a recent series of talks that I'm doing are about why we used a particular technical approach called microservices in our startup, Boxkey. And I kind of framed it as we use this technique from day one. The general consensus is that that's probably not a bad idea because it's too complicated from day one and you should keep things really simple. Mm -hmm. So I'm telling the story of, okay, well, we did use this technique from day one. And what's the lessons that we learned? And what, what are the takeaways afterwards? Mm -hmm. But the talk itself is not just a list of lessons or a list of takeaways. You have to tell the story of the startup. You have to tell the story of what happened as well. And all the mistakes that you made. That's a great way for getting the audience on side. It's to talk about your mistakes far, far more than your successes. That's true, isn't it? People love to hear how other people slipped up. Absolutely. Although I, I would say there's one other thing that I would really recommend to speakers is if you make a mistake in your presentation, I don't know, you're a little bit late starting or the video doesn't play in your... By the way, just don't you have videos in your deck? That looks like much easier. <laughs> okay. But if the video doesn't play or you... um stumble over a word or something, you, you often find that inexperienced speakers will apologize to the audience. That really isn't necessary. Like the audience is on your side anyway. They want you to succeed. It's much better just to keep going. Okay. If you're acting in a play and somebody forgets a line, you just keep going. Okay. So speaking about things that might go wrong, ways in which you might slip up, can you tell me, do you have a worst speaking experience? Anything that stands out in your mind, <laughs> right back to when you were a little boy in church reading, any experience that stands out as the worst for you? This is karma coming back to, to bite me now, because this is one of my favorite questions to speakers. So a time when I completely fluffed. I can't remember the specific event where this happened, but... It was a salutary lesson. Okay. Technical talks often have questions at the end. And that can be good, but it can be tricky because there are always people much smarter than you in the audience who are just waiting to catch you out. And I gave a talk last year called The Algebra of Microservices, which sounds terribly posh. It's great. I, I fell in love with the title and the idea that I could squeeze this piece of technology architecture into a mathematical idea. And, I, you know, falling in love with an idea is dangerous because it turns out it actually didn't really work. And maybe not even because the idea itself didn't work, but because I just didn't have the time to really structure it properly or really find the right analogies to describe it or even to get it 100% technically to fit together. Mm -hmm. And if you've ever dealt with a professional mathematician or somebody who's, who's got a solid background in mathematics, well, you know, it's black and white. <laughs> Does it not really admit of analogy? And a great talk. So this is where I was at Australia, because sometimes you can take these rules and they, they can lead you down the wrong path. A great talk sometimes is based on analogy. Stories are based on analogy and uh, metaphor. But if you push that too far, you know, technical context, if the metaphor becomes the thing itself, well, then it's BS <laughs> and you'll rightly get called on. So I, I did this whole, I did this entire talk, 50 minutes going on about the idea. And it was, it was pretty much just analogy after analogy. And of course, there was somebody who had a PhD in mathematics. Stood <laughs> up afterwards and basically asked one or two questions that completely demolished the entire talk. 
So even though the presentation of that talk went well, it fell kind of flat for the audience afterwards. Okay. If that person hadn't asked that question, then the audience would have had a sort of feel-good factor afterwards. But actually, the 50 minutes was pretty much useless because they didn't work, walk away with anything actionable. And the lesson, I guess, is that sometimes if you fall in love with an idea and, and you forget to sense check it and you forget to think about the value of the audience, maybe it's just uh, intellectual posturing. Okay. Mm. That's something to be wary of. I don't think it's something that you, you would have too much trouble with when you're starting out speaking, but I think if you do it a lot, sometimes it's very easy to say, oh, yeah, I, I do let's speak. I can do this. I can just throw something together. This is a kind of a sexy idea. Let's just go, let's just run with this. But if the idea has no substance, even if you don't get caught out by somebody with a PhD in the subject area, in a technical conference, that's likely to happen. But even if you don't, it's 50 minutes of wasted time for the audience. Okay. You should always go back to the question of what is the value? What is the audience going to walk away with of value? Mm -hmm. It's not a comedy show where it's just entertainment. There, there has to be something that's useful afterwards. So as someone, Richard, for whom public speaking isn't your main activity, would you have any advice for somebody who, uh, like you said there a, a few minutes ago, who's been asked by their boss, for example, to speak at an event for work? That person may not have any training. They may be terrified. Do you have any advice for that uh, newbie who's suddenly put in the spotlight? Absolutely. So let's assume it's the classic scenario, which is, no, there's no training budget. You're a professional. Get up there and do it. And you're, you, you know, you, you've been assigned to speak at something maybe two months away, whatever. I mean, the, the first time I was put in that situation, it was only a 10 minute talk and it, it was the scariest 10 minutes of my life because, <laughs> you know, it's not just public speaking, it's professional public speaking and you're in front of an audience of your peers and people in the industry might know you. So if you fluff it, it's a big deal. One thing definitely not to do is don't go near any alcohol or anything like that. <laughs> you don't need Dutch courage. What you need is sharp intelligence. And in fact, that fear before you go on stage, that nervousness, the butterflies in your stomach is adrenaline. And adrenaline makes you smarter. So if you just lean into it, lean into the fear a little bit and realize that your brain is actually operating at twice the speed of the audience's, by definition, because half of them are on Twitter anyway. Um, in that <laughs> moment, in those 10 minutes or 15 minutes or whatever it is, you are by definition, more intelligent than the rest of the audience. Mm. I think there's a couple of things that make your life easier. One piece of content that you should try and put in a talk always is a personal story. Yes. Because by definition, you are the expert and nobody can counter say it. You know, and if that, that talk that I'd given about algebra and microservices was reframed as a journey of personal discovery and exploration of the idea, even if the end result was, well, this idea doesn't really work, that would have been a much better talk. Because at least you're taking people through an example of a process of, of exploring a, a technical idea. Yes. I think if you can manage to get some training at all anywhere, it's worth fighting for inside your organization. There's always training budgets. It's worth putting up a bit of a, a fuss about it and seeing can you, because it will make a huge, huge difference. Okay. And then don't stop there. There is a vast amounts of material on the web. That's right. Yes. Huge amounts of material all over the place, all sorts of newsletters. YouTube videos, all that sort of stuff. Talking about public speaking. I, I think it's important though not to be overwhelmed because there's just huge amounts of advice. One thing that I, I do, which is really useful, is going to YouTube and watching videos of people who have given really good talks. Mm -hmm. Yes. And just giving it your full attention. And you don't even need to consciously take notes. You don't need to consciously identify the specific techniques you know humans learn by imitation mm -hmm. and just by exposing yourself to good speakers and if you know you have a talk coming up 
do this on a regular basis, you know, two or three times a week. Yes. Hey, you know, I'm giving you permission to watch YouTube and work. <laughs> and of course, that has the fantastic advantage that it's completely free. Yeah. So if your boss is being a little bit awkward about training costs, you can at least rely on YouTube. Exactly. And then let's just go back to this idea of the narrative arc. I know it sounds terribly posh, right? Or, you know, or something only uh, somebody like George R. R. Martin, the writer, you know, can do. And we've all seen with the latest season of Game of Thrones what can happen when you don't have a, a, an arc that makes sense. It doesn't work terribly well as a story. Don't start by just trying to slap down facts on a PowerPoint presentation. Start by pacing the room and thinking about what the arc of that story is going to be. What's the journey you want to take the audience on? And, you know, if you've studied Shakespeare in school, think about how that works. I mean, five act, you're not going to do a five act play, right? Stick with a three act one. <laughs> But, you know, but you've got to set the scene in the first act. And then the second act is all about conflict. It's all about creating a scenario where there's some difficulty. How are you going to get out of it? What will mm-hmm. what are the problems? You know, and then the third act is, is kind of explaining the consequences of the decisions, all that sort of stuff. So go back to the, the, that other talk I was talking about, about the journey of using microservices from day one in the startup. You know, the, the, the first third of that talk is kind of setting the scene and talking about the different stages of the startup from minimum viable product to production and all that sort of stuff. The middle part of that talk is all about going, well, okay, well, here's the ideal and here's what actually happened and here's how we made a complete mess of things and mm-hmm. all that sort of stuff. And then the third part is analyzing the learnings and giving people the takeaway. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we're not talking about, you know, uh, Henry IV defeating the French <laughs> and that being the, the climax of, of your talk. But at the same time, you just have to have that as a structure in the background. That sounds really good. So like in traditional drama, you have a build-up, you have some kind of conflict, and then you have your resolution. So there's a bit of emotional payoff yeah. for the audience. Even in the most, you know, I don't want to say dry, but <laughs> in the most factual of technical talks, the audience are still humans. Exactly. They still like that emotional payoff. I think that aids learning as well. Yeah. Richard, um, I just want to change tack for a little bit and ask you something else. So we mentioned at the very beginning all the hats you wear. In work, but you're also a husband and a father of four children. So I want to ask you, how do you manage that? How do you manage the demands of a large family and all that that entails alongside the demands of running a startup? <laughs> with great difficulty. The problem with the startup is that you end up with lots of, you end, you end up being buffered by many wins and some of them of your own making, some of them you can't predict at all. This is, Fourth company that I've started, um, third sort of proper startup. I think the learning over the years has been that you have to try to have some, some sort of, uh, routine to, to how the, how you do the work. Unfortunately, a startup, it is, it is always difficult because you always have these kind of critical moments. It's important to try and create safe times and safe spaces. If you're single and you're doing a startup and you're trying to, you know, a lot of times, People just work seven days a week and just go flat out. Yeah. That's fine if you're that age. If you're older, and I mean, here's the funny thing. Most successful startups are started by people in their 40s. Startups turn turn out to be really hard. (laughs) You kind of need that experience. We hear about all the successful startups done by people in their 20s because of survivorship bias. They're the ones that succeeded. But a lot more of them fail. A lot more of the successful startups are people like me who did them when they were younger and did it all wrong. You have to create safety and one of the ways you do that is I try not to work at the weekend, but even if I do, I try not to send emails to people. So if the CEO is sending emails to people at the weekend, it'll create a culture where people feel the need to work at the weekend because nobody wants to 
leave the CEO waiting until Monday before they answer. If you try to work by example, if you try to set an example in terms of the, the work-life balance, even though it's really hard, I think that's important. And then I think it's important to have it in the company culture be explicit that it is about trying to do things in a relatively sane way. It is about flexibility. I mean, the interesting thing for parent people who are parents is the fact that if you're a parent, you always have these completely non-negotiable external things that can happen to you. Like your kid is sick and school phones you, or your class is away and you need to go and pick up children from school or whatever. Making that a safe thing is really important. When you're saying safe, do you mean that it's blocked off on your calendar? Nothing else can happen at that time. A bit more than that. This actually happened this week, right? So the management meeting and, and our head of marketing phoned in to say that she needed to take her um, child to the doctor and had to leave the meeting 15 minutes into the meeting. Now, in a more traditional organization, perhaps one with a little bit right for politics, that would be used against that person or they wouldn't consider it acceptable or they'd have to do it anyway, but then be massively stressed out because they know they've created a political disadvantage. So one has to explicitly make it safe to say, I have this family commitment and I need to go mm-hmm. and it has no negative consequences and it has to be seen to have no negative consequences. So it's not just about me saying, oh, how am I going to balance it for myself? That can only be done in a culture where that balancing is seen as and doesn't mean that you're not taking the company seriously. Okay. Do you think you're managing reasonably successfully to keep this balance at home and work? I'd say it's difficult. As the CEO, you're kind of the lightning rod for all the different things and all the different types of people that uh, affect a company. One of the challenges you have in a startup is even though you're trying to create a particular culture, you still have to interface with the traditional startup world. So getting investors and board members and clients to understand a particular culture and accept it, that's also a challenge. Right. Okay, Richard, um, we're nearly going to finish up now. I just wanted to ask you one last thing about the fact of running a company in a small place. There can be a perception that so-called creative people or people with dreams, in inverted commas, have to leave their hometown or, or maybe even their country and move to a big city, ideally on the West Coast of America, to find opportunities. Box Gig has chosen to base itself in Waterford, a small city in the southeast corner of Ireland. So how does that work for a company with global ambitions? And even, I suppose, even a more burning question, how do you find good people? It's often seen as a terrible weakness for a startup not to be in the Bay Area in San Francisco or in Shoreditch in London uh, or in you know, the former east of, of Berlin, for example. But I think you can flip that on its head. Sometimes a weakness can be a strength if you look at it the right way. Anybody anywhere in the world can work for Voxky, which means the entire planet of American people is available to us as potential colleagues. The question then becomes, why would they want to work for the company? And that is answered by culture. And I think this goes back to the points you were raising about how you manage this work-life balance issue. I think if part of your culture is that that is central to who you are, if things like flexible working and, and diversity are, are core to the culture, then you sort of self-select for good people who care about those things. You have to have some way of, of making the company different. There's a lot of talk these days about making company cultures better and more open, that sort of stuff. Um, but I, don't, I still don't hear too much about companies making themselves parent-friendly. And I think that's an important value that we have. Some of the very best people who probably made a bit of money or who's, who are secure in their careers often end up moving out of cities mm-hmm. and they have families, they have children and they, they want to have a better quality of life that comes from not being in a dense urban center, which is fine in your 20s, but 
not when you have children. And what do they then do for turn a living? A lot of them have to end up being freelance consultants, public speakers, you know, that, that sort of thing, or some of the very lucky ones end up being able to, you know, remote work. But what if the entire company is based on that? So we don't have a head office. Everybody works remotely, and whether that's from their home or a cafe or a working space, doesn't really matter. We have people all, all over the world, so it doesn't really matter what the time zones are. Mm-hmm. If you're led by the culture, that then defines the practicalities of the, of the working arrangements. And that is extremely attractive. The irony that we have as a startup right now is we actually have a list of really great people that want to work for us that I'd, I'd love to employ on the spot. Of course, <laughs> as a startup, we don't quite have the money to do it just yet. So recruiting has never been an issue for us. I think paradoxically, if we were based in a large urban center, if we were based in Dublin or London, we wouldn't be forced to do things differently. And we wouldn't have got the absolutely amazing people that we do have who have all joined really because we're serious about this parent-friendly culture. Okay, Richard, thank you so much for joining me today. And for anyone who wants to reach out to Richard, he's on LinkedIn under Richard Roger and on Twitter at RJ Roger. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Fireside with Foxgig podcast. Just a few final notes before the embers fade. You can find show notes and links from this podcast at voxgig.com slash podcasts. We also publish a weekly newsletter on public speaking, selecting the best advice and techniques from some of the world's greatest speakers, both ancient and modern. Rhetoric is an old and revered art, not especially easy to master, but it is a skill like any other and one you can learn. Visit voxgig.com speakers to subscribe to the newsletter. If you've enjoyed this fireside chat, please consider subscribing to our podcast. Please also leave a review that helps us make this podcast even better. If you'd like to contact us directly, you can reach us on Twitter at VoxGig. And if you'd like to be counted as a supporter, just let us know and we'll add you to our supporters page. And one final reminder to check our sponsor, simplecast.com, who helped make this podcast possible. Talk to you next time and remember... Take a deep breath, pause, and step forward.